You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, Bruce Carlson of the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast joins me to talk about the first man ever to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel, only to die years later after slipping on an orange peel. Or how about the story of a family that was asked to sign an apartment rental agreement that limited each person to one bath per week? Can you imagine? And then you'll hear the story of a woman who caught a trout with a fly swatter. Plus, as an added bonus, Bruce will tell us the long-forgotten story of Cleveland's subway. I'm betting most people in Cleveland didn't even know they once had a subway. Well, all that, plus today's question of the day, the retro sponsor, and so much more. It's all coming up next on today's edition of the Useless Information Retrocast. I am Steve Silman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information. So, Bruce, thanks for joining me on the Retrocast. Uh, It's great to have you here. Thanks, Steve. Great to be on. Now, I gave you a little background on how this is set up. Basically, it's uh, some short stories. I throw in what's called a retro sponsor, an old-time commercial, and so on. So I thought we'd go through and uh, take turns going through those and reading them, okay? Sounds good to me. Okay, so let's dive into the first one. At the turn of the 20th century, Jacob Hope owned a pet shop in Philadelphia, and his specialty was birds. That's talking birds in particular. But the responsibility of teaching these avian chatterboxes to speak fell upon Mrs. Hope, that's of course his wife, who came up with a very unique way of training them. As she explained in an article in the September 13, 1903 edition of the Pittsburgh Post, quote, A parrot that can't talk sells for $10 or $15, and one that can talk sells for $100 or $150 according to its proficiency. Now, adjusted for inflation, that's between $3,500 and $5,200 today. That's a lot of money for a pet bird. Anyway, she continued, Why shouldn't I take half a dozen untrained birds worth, say, $75 and then turn them out good talkers worth $700 or $800? Now, her method of training was quite straightforward. She would simply select half a dozen young parrots, place them in a room by themselves, and then cover their cages with hoods. Now, this is done because the birds supposedly learn faster when they aren't distracted. Anyway, she would sit down beside the cages and repeat the phrase, Polly want a cracker? Polly want a cracker? Over and over again. Well, as you can imagine, after about 10 or 15 minutes of doing this, both Mrs. Hope and the birds would tire of the repetition so she felt the need to change the situation up a bit. What she would do is remove the covers from the cages and then hide behind a screen as she once again began that monotonous repetition of, Polly want a cracker? Polly want a cracker? Then, after weeks of training the birds, Mrs. Hope had a brainstorm. You know, maybe she could use her newfangled phonograph to train the birds. 
What she did was she sought out the help of a phonograph dealer who taught her how to record her own records. And you know exactly what she did. She recorded herself repeating, Polly want a cracker, Polly want a cracker, onto that recording over and over again. But then came the big question, would her idea work? Well, it did, and the results were far beyond her expectations. The parrots were not only learning the phrases, but they were picking them up in far less time. So Mrs. Hope's next step was to obtain several phonographs and proceeded to record other phrases. The net result was that all the birds that she trained using this new method were sold at a premium price. Now when other people learned that she was training the birds this way, they asked Mrs. Hope if she could train their birds. She agreed, and she set up a phonograph school to do so. The cost was $40, or about $1,375 today, for a six-month term. At the time of her interview with the Pittsburgh Post, she had 20 students enrolled in her classes. Not bad. Her star pupil was able to say, Yankee Doodle went to town a-riding on a pony. She explained, quote, This little bird is the best talker I've ever seen. His name is Dewey, and he can speak three languages, English, German, and French. His accomplishments are altogether due to the phonograph. When asked if it took a long time to teach a parrot, she replied, quote, Not with the machine. I use cylinders of extra-large size, and since I have a number of phonographs, I can, if I wish, keep one phrase dinning in a parrot's ear all day long. I rarely do that, though, for the reason that such a course makes a bird irritable and nervous and takes its appetite away. As a rule, the lessons last 30 minutes a day, and a week is given to learning one phrase, unquote. So the reason I did this story is that uh, it reminded me of a business that my brother and I owned. We had for 10 years an online pet supplies business. We sold it back in 2010, and it was an offshoot of my parents' pet shop. My parents were getting close to retirement. I went to my dad, and my, I said, you really should put your business up online. This is in the late 90s, and he's like, oh, no, you know, no one will ever make any money on the internet. So he wasn't interested Uh, A year later, I showed him a dummy site, and uh, he said, that's fine, but you and your brother have to do it. And we were both teachers, and we ended up in the pet business. So we did that for a decade. And one of our most popular products was selling CDs that trained birds to talk. And they were perfect. They were perfect because they, you know, weighed very little, and they were high profit. You know, you don't want to ship dog food across the country, but, you know, a little CD doesn't. Um, you know, it is very economical to ship. So that's why I chose the story. Now, do you have any pets or? I have two cats. Uh, mm-hmm. Under many conditions, my cat, Sheena, who is a tuxedo cat, would be here. She manages to stay in the recording process quite often. She's not here today in the studio. But and then my other, um, her daughter, that cat's daughter, uh, Birdie, mm-hmm is a kind of reverse tuxedo she's got more white than black and and she 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 does run away from the recording session (laughs) sheena's intrigued by podcasting i find yeah we we had three cats but sadly they've all passed on at this point um i do have a i do have a cockatiel uh she's really nice uh i was trying to figure out how old she is i'm not really sure uh she wasn't mine originally she's gone through multiple owners but I'm guessing somewhere in the 13, 14-year range, something like that. And they live about 25 years. Really, 
a nice, friendly bird. I have to actually take her out of the room when I record because she wants to talk when I'm talking. And uh, she'll, she'll start, well, she can't say anything, but yeah, but she, she'll just start, uh, you know, trying to imitate what I say or have some sort of conversation. I don't know. So anyway, so now we're going to move on get to get a one... uh, co-host out of that. Yeah. Except no one would understand her, you know. <laughs> so why don't we move on to a story that uh, you have? This is about Niagara Falls. It may come as a bit of a surprise, mainly because men have a history of doing some of the more foolish things. But the first person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel and survive was not a man. Instead, it was a woman named Annie Edson Taylor. After the death of her husband during the Civil War, Annie spent many years teaching in various locations around the United States. Fortunately, teaching paid very little. And by the time she turned 60, Annie was destitute. Then, story goes, she's reading a magazine article about the daredevils who had conquered the Whirlpool Rapids downstream from Niagara Falls. They were going over the rapids in a barrel. Well, Annie thought, I can go over the falls in a barrel and surpass them all. And if she did so, she would be the first person to do it. Her motivation? Purely financial. She believed that if she did this, the fame resulting from it would secure her of substantial income in the aftermath. And so, on October 24th, 1901, which was her 63rd birthday, Annie Edson Taylor hopped in her oversized pickle barrel and went over the edge. And, other than a small gash in her head, she emerged largely unharmed. She did get a little fame. She was called the Goddess of the Water. But she didn't get immediate riches and prosperity from this event. She did make a little money selling her memoirs at a stand next to the falls where she'd have the barrel for 10 cents a piece. But these things have a shelf life. And by the time you get to the 19-teens, no one remembers Annie Edson Taylor's name anymore. She was swindled by some tour operators, and regrettably, her barrel was stolen. When she dies in 1921, she passed away in poverty. The cost of her funeral was covered by donations from the public. The second person to go over the falls was Bobby Leach. He was born in Lancaster, England in 1858 and came to the United States when he was 18 years old. Leach was an excellent swimmer and began his career exhibiting diving and swimming tricks for the Barnum and Bailey Circus. His specialty was diving from a platform elevated 150 feet above, plunging into a shallow pool below. In the era that predated powered flight, he would make parachute jumps from lofty balloons. As airplanes gained prevalence, Leach adapted by descending from one aircraft to another using a rope ladder. In 1908, he accomplished a successful dive off the Whirlpool Rapids Bridge, plunging 208 feet, this is 63 meters, into the Niagara River below. After he does his dive off, Leach then goes on to traverse the rapids in a barrel on at least four different occasions. Now his next goal is to go over the falls in a barrel. And he acknowledges he wouldn't be the first, that was Taylor. He aspired to become the first man to achieve this daring feat. And so, July 25th, 1911, Leach hopped into his 11-foot-long steel barrel, strapped himself into his canvas hammock, and began his journey downstream. About 200 yards from the fall, 
the barrel struck a large rock, which broke into a portion of its wooden nose. Moments later, his craft plunged over the falls, and upon reaching the bottom, vanished under the water's surface for about 30 seconds. It then pops back up, and the barrel embarks on its downstream journey and got entangled in an eddy, swirling in a circular motion for several minutes. Nevertheless, it swiftly resumed its course, and eventually a man swam out to attach a rope to his barrel and pulled him to the shoreline. Upon emerging from the barrel, Bobby Leach raised his body and excitedly waved to the crowds assembled along the river's edge. Leach seemed happy, but his body was badly beaten. He had a fractured jaw, broken ribs, both of his kneecaps were shattered. Leach would spend the next 23 weeks recovering in the hospital. Fast forward to February 26, 1926, having recently concluded a lecture tour in New Zealand. Leach was walking down a street in Auckland and slipped in an orange peel, and that resulted in a broken leg. Gangrene set in, and on Monday, April 26, 1926, doctors had no choice but to amputate. Tragically, Bobby Leach passed away two days later. Ironically, the man who had survived so many death-defying feats throughout his lifetime met his end at the age of 69 due to a fatal slip on an orange peel. So I guess I should ask you, have you ever been to Niagara Falls? You know, I, I'm close to it, but I have not. And I'm one of the few people around where I live, which is right across the river from New York, who haven't been. Here's another odd fact. You talk about useless information. Useless mm -hmm. information about me. I live in northern New Jersey. And I've mm -hmm. been to Canada once. Where do you mm -hmm. think that would normally be? Niagara Falls, right? Or, okay, a trip to Montreal, right? A trip to Toronto. No, the only place I've visited is Vancouver <laughs> and back. Yeah, I've never been to Vancouver. Uh, my wife has a friend there, and uh, maybe someday we'll make our make our way out there. Uh, I actually lived, uh, well, I, I went to New University of Buffalo for my undergraduate which is probably about 30 minutes from Niagara Falls. So I've been there many times. Unfortunately, it wasn't really to visit the falls. Uh, back then, the drinking age was 18. And uh, this is you know, back in the early 80s. And I didn't drink. So my friends, you, you could bring one case of Canadian beer per occupant of the car. You could bring it across <laughs> the border without a tariff. So if they put me in the car, they can get one more case in without having to pay uh, a tariff on it. Uh, so anyway, I've been to Niagara Falls many times. Uh, I do recommend you go. It's a, it's just a a once in a lifetime thing to see. It's just just spectacular. Uh, it's just uh, you know the amount of water that goes over it uh, is just. Incredible. I mean, we have the Patterson Falls here in New Jersey, but of course, it's nothing. It's very important in history, but it's nothing in comparison from from what I understand. And uh, of course, that story. I mean, it just hit me because. Uh, so much there because she accomplished this amazing feat right. really had to be a shot in the dark i mean you roll a die you know uh five out of six probably you die or you get severely right. injured doing that and she rolled the one and she's barely injured you know she just did this fantastic thing and of course got very little reward. The other thing is she lied about her age. I didn't get into mm -hmm. that in the story, but she she was really uh we we said, you know, she was a, a elderly woman, but she well, I shouldn't say elderly, 63, you know, or something. Um but uh she she was said she was in her she said she was 40. 
So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that people wouldn't be like, "Don't do this!" My gosh, this is a fascinating story. The struggle of those times. Um, people were destitute and did crazy things. Yeah, the reason I researched this story was that uh, I had come across just mentions here and there, here and there over the years that he had died slipping on an orange peel, and I just had to find out if that was really true. So I went back and found the original art, original articles. What I was kind of surprised by. I was under the impression it was instantaneous. You know, he's walking down the street and you know, went down and he was he was gone. But no, you know, he uh, you know struggled after that and uh, died after his leg was amputated. It's a sad story, but uh, a little, little ironic, I would say. Yeah, he came before penicillin, very important uh, right. invention. Exactly. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On January 22nd of 1949, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Scott filed an unusual complaint with Cincinnati area rent director Stephen Young. They claimed that they were being evicted because they refused to sign a contract that limited them to one bath per week. Can you imagine? Now, this whole ordeal began the previous August when their landlady, that's Mrs. William Griffin, received permission from Mr. Young to increase the rent on the apartment in question from $25 to $29 per month. Adjusted for inflation, she was raising the rent from $312 to $377 per month. Now, Young only agreed to this increase because Mrs. Griffin had installed an electric hot water heater in the building, and that was located in Kenton County, Kentucky, which I should add is just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. But I should also mention this all happened months before the Scots and their 17-year-old daughter Pat leased that first-floor apartment. As for the Griffins and their three children, they lived in a separate apartment on the same floor of that building, and they shared the bathroom with the Scots. And for the first couple of months, everything seemed to be going well. But then, when Mr. Scott attempted to pay the rent in mid-December, Mrs. Griffin told him that he needed to sign that bath contract. Of course, the Scots refused, so Mrs. Griffin didn't accept their rent money. Mrs. Scott was quoted as saying, She wanted us to limit ourselves to one tub a week and the members of the family to use the tub on different nights. She continued, And she didn't want us to have overnight guests or parties. Unquote. Mrs. Griffin, on the other hand, later explained, quote, I said no parties that disturb other tenants. There's quite a difference. Well, since the Scots had refused to sign that contract, Mrs. Griffin padlocked the bathroom door and turned off the water. 
She then informed the Scots they would have to use outdoor facilities, which I interpret to be either a tree or an outhouse. Of course, this also meant that the Griffins were unable to use the bathroom since they used the same one, but that didn't seem to phase them in the least. And that's because Mr. Griffin was able to shower at work, their three children were all bathed in a small tub, and Mrs. Griffin opted to bathe once a week and taking sponge baths during the interim. According to Mrs. Griffin, the reason for her unusual bath contract was the high cost of hot water. You see, health authorities told her that the two cisterns on her property were contaminated, so she had no choice but to haul the water in. She estimated that the cost to do so was about $6 per month, plus an additional $4 to heat it. Now, that $10 total translates into approximately $128 per month today. The Scots did offer to pay for their portion of the water that was hauled in, but Mrs. Griffin insisted that the cost of heating it was the real problem. She noted that her tenants were taking a total of eight baths per week, which was the rationale for the contract limiting the number of baths they could take. And since the Scots refused to sign that contract and had not paid their rent, Mrs. Griffin hired a lawyer to start the eviction process. So the Scots, in turn, also hired an attorney, and that's how it ended up before rent control attorney Young. And after reviewing their case, he informed Mrs. Griffin that she would need to lower her rent by $2 per month. And that's because she failed to provide the Scots with the hot water she had promised. But Mrs. Griffin still wanted to evict the Scots, which required a series of hearings. Well, the case was ultimately decided by Magistrate Sue Lakeman, who ruled against the Scots. And it wasn't so much that she was siding with Mrs. Griffin, but it was that the Scots didn't put up a defense, so she had no choice but to evict them. Well, the eviction paperwork was finalized on March 8th of 1949, and Mrs. Griffin didn't waste any time in kicking the Scots to the curb. Within hours, all their furniture was piled alongside the road, awaiting pickup by a moving truck. As for the Scots, they said they were moving in with some relatives in Newport, Kentucky. We do still have, uh, in New Jersey, um, rent control boards. New York City has them, but it's also part of some municipalities, even small ones in New Jersey, do have this. And this actually comes up. I've heard of cases fairly mm -hmm. recently where they try to say uh i'm including you know hot water or taking out hot water and to get around the rent rules that way um which that usually there the the landlord is corrected like some of these mm -hmm. towns here you can only raise it four percent per year no more right yeah up here where i am up near albany i don't think such a thing exists um, I think people just charge whatever, you know, but I can't imagine. I mean, of course, this is 1949 mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm thinking this is right after the war. Uh, mm -hmm. Housing's in short supply. Um, so I'm sure people are trying to get astronomical uh, prices for their rents. And you'd have things like this rent control board that would determine how much you could charge and how much you could raise it by. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the laws that we have today in Jersey, they're just they're just on the books from that era okay before. they're not mm -hmm. new nobody's created a new board they just the towns have had them for years yeah fascinating mm -hmm. time huge building boom covered that a lot of my podcast yeah um I, I don't i haven't covered it much uh, i did one about a year ago 
about a town that was that came up with an anti-inflation plan. Um, but I, I just barely touched on that. Uh, it's just a, a fun little story. And it seemed timely for, you know, a year ago, the inflation was kind of out of control, you know. Luckily, it stabilized a bit. So uh, things are getting a little bit back to normal. Um, so yeah, we didn't anyways, have to go to barter. Yeah. <laughs> so Bruce, in every retrocast, I ask kind of a trivia question. You probably won't know the answer to this. Uh, so you just give your best guesstimate, okay? Okay. We're both not young anymore. I mean, what I'm saying is we're not in our teens anymore. And <laughs> yep. uh, I'm sure you remember carbon paper, right? Absolutely. CC, yes. the original CC. Sure. Do you know what year it was invented in? Now, uh, don't uh -huh. say anything. I'll let you think about it for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of the podcast, okay? Okay. So I don't, I don't guess, or I should guess? You'll guess later on. Okay. Very good. And one thing I do in every retrocast is I play what I call a retro sponsor. These are just old commercials that come from old-time radio. And this one is from the Bing Crosby Philco Radio Time Show, which was from January 1st, 1947. So let's take a listen. Thank you, Paige. That was lots of fun. I enjoyed uh, that. Say, Bing, mm -hmm. I got a great idea. Well, we could use one. You know, it'd be a great idea if somebody would set up a trading post where you could swap Christmas presents like that hand-crocheted necktie Aunt Nellie gave you for something you really wanted. A new Philco radio, for instance, uh, which brings up the point that if anybody gave you cash for Christmas, it's a cinch to give yourself a Philco now. Any Philco dealer will be glad to swap with you. And he's got what it takes. The biggest variety of new Philco radios and radio phonographs in five years. All kinds of prices and models, including brand new inventions like the Philco 1201. The radio phonograph where you just slide your record in and it plays automatically. That new Philco portable makes a solid swap, too. Or maybe you go for a radio phonograph with automatic record changer. Philco has them from table model size up to those big, gorgeous consoles that you haven't seen in years. What's the guy talking about, Bing? He's uh, reading the commercial, Joe. Oh, I thought they sang it. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, that's a high-class show. May I continue? Now go right ahead, Ken. Don't mind us. Listen, Joe, when this show... We so swap your Christmas cash for a new Philco now. You'll be getting years of solid listening pleasure for the newest thing in radio from Philco the Leader. Okay, now I should mention the uh, guest on that show was Peggy Lee. And uh, there's not really much to say about the show. It's mostly Bing and other people singing. And they did have a little bit of conversation and humor mix in there. Now, I did make some uh, notes about Philco. It started as the company's name originally was Helios. It was founded in 1892, and they made carbon arc lamps. They then changed their name to the Philadelphia Battery Company, and they made batteries for electric cars. But as you know, uh, even though the early automobiles were electric, we eventually went to the combustion engine, and demand for uh, the batteries for electric cars started to wane. So they began to make batteries for the uh, radio industry, which, of course, was in its infancy at the time. They began making their own radios in 1926. And by 1934, they had 30% of the U.S. market. That's pretty fast uh, to build. Yeah. They were basically mass producing them. Uh, you know, they had lowered the cost and they were still crazy expensive. But compared to other uh, radios uh, that were on the market, I actually have a case there's no radio inside. It's from a company called Atwater Kent, I believe. And they basically were making very high-end radios. And when the Depression hit, that was the end of it because nobody could afford them. You know, the company went out of business. But Philco was focusing more on the lower end, and th that allowed them to grow so quickly. A good strategy for that time, no doubt. 
Yeah. Eventually they moved into home appliances. Uh, my favorite was called a Predicta TV. It didn't work very well, but it was kind of this futuristic little TV that they had that could rotate in any direction. The company was sold to Ford in 1961. And today, even though they don't make radios, it's owned by Philips in the US and overseas, the name is owned by Electrolux. Now, a couple of things I'm just gonna throw in here is I actually own two Philco radios. Um, they're huge, monstrous things. They're a console ones. They, you know, they're probably- Do they you know, still work or? So one works. It has, ah. they're both from 1946. Uh, the one that looks the worst, I mean, it's, it's you know, all its finishes peeling off and the veneers coming off. Uh, that one actually works. And uh, it's from 1946, as I said. And then just maybe about six weeks ago, I was at an estate sale and I'm down the basement and there was another very similar model from the same year, but the case was pristine. And I said to the guy, does it work? He goes, I don't know. He told me it was $12.50. I said, sold. I said, if I get it home and it doesn't work, oh, well, well, I got it home and it didn't, it didn't work. Um, so I have to f see if I can find somebody locally who knows how to fix them because I don't have the skill. Now, the last thing I want to mention is that they came out with a radio record player just for that show. And from that show, they sold 238,723 Bing Crosby specials. They sold for wow. 60 bucks, which is about $950 today. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a big purchase for that time. But. Right. And the two that I have, uh, as I told you, I paid $12.50 for this one that doesn't work. They sold for around $200 each back then. That would have been about $3,000 today. So they were very, very expensive. You know, I wonder if they could, uh, there was a lot of installment. That was the beginning of installment buying. Mm -hmm. Maybe they had some credit buying, some some bank loans, but product-based loans are really beginning in the 20s where you could, you could do a little bit of payment. But mm -hmm. it's fascinating. Um, the history of radio, the supposed decline of radio over the years, right? Although I think there are always people like me and I suspect yourself listening to, to radio. NPR was always very popular. And then podcasts come around. And what do you know? The audio medium has not died, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the only thing is, though, you get to choose very specifically what you want to listen versus, you That's know. That's true. I mean, you do have some choice in the radio stations you listen to. But, you know, if you listen to NPR or something similar to that, they're choosing the programming for you. Of course, depending on your political leanings or what your interests are. For example, the local NPR station around here plays the opera, which I'm not into, but other people are, you know. So uh, the one thing I also wrote this down, that uh, Philco did not produce any radios for civilian use from 1943 through 45. And that, of course, is because of the war. And uh, 1946, which is the two that I have, that was their first year, uh, you know, back at producing consumer radios. That had a lot of both of those things going on. Um, most companies in the U.S. converted to war production. And then it's about 46 where things take off. Mm -hmm. um, and not, because of that and because of all the ra rationing, the economy wasn't so good. You know, Truman kind of took a beating in those midterms over all that and the economy and everything. But yeah, strange times. Yeah. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So, Bruce, the original reason we started talking is that we are both on the same network, and I just happened to post on the Discord that was there that I may be the old timer because I started my podcast in 2008. And what was your response? I started in 2006. Uh, not to not to be a one upper, but it's just simply <laughs> the uh, it's simply the case. Um, I started, and and of course, neither of us are the original podcast <laughs> at all. There were plenty of podcasts around in 2006. Of a few that are still around the memory right. place uh dan carlin was was alive and kicking you know history according to bob a whole bunch of other shows but yeah i, I started pretty early though pretty much a pioneer at the time when you had to actually tell people what a podcast was exactly <laughs> like what are you doing what's that microphone next to your large desktop computer did did you think you'd still be doing it all these years later or no um, the one thing I did notice is that the audience grew pretty quickly, even though it was small, which led mm -hmm. me to believe maybe some of that, that this this might be a thing here, this mixing politics and history thing, uh, because it went from like 20 listeners to that, that, that 20 to 1000 was like crazy. That happened like in the first year. Yeah, that happened. And getting from the next, it didn't grow as fast after that, although it has grown to like 10 times that amount, but, but it hasn't grown you know that 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 extra growth was much slower, but that initial boom. It, it you know people told me we were looking for something. And there we were talking about radio before the limited amount of uh, of choices and things, and uh, that's the way podcasting was then. There were a lot mm -hmm. of podcasts, but not enough to where if I did something about say President Grover Cleveland, I might be the only one on. Um, right. iTunes, which was Apple Podcast at the time, I might be the only one on podcasting that had an episode on Grover Cleveland. Right. You know, when I hit my first thousand, you know, I was a teacher, so I just figured as all my students, I figured word got around the school and they were subscribing. But then I started getting messages, you know, emails from other listeners around the world. I was like, wow, maybe it's not just my students. And yes. uh, at, th at this point, well, of course I'm retired, so I don't really see my students, but uh, I rare you know if if i if i get messages and things like that it's no one i recognize it's very rare uh so it's it's kind of nice to get out to recording out to people that aren't just necessarily friends of yours you know well i think the interactiveness of podcasting has always been present and is always a feature of it is always a benefit of it i mean sometimes you don't like it the feedback that you get but um so in some ways the listeners and i do the show not totally. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the show. You're doing your show. <laughs> you know? But they do guide, definitely guide. They've 
they everything from how you do an intro that was a listener kind of like hey you should do things different and the idea comes out of it to topics q a episodes um it's always been much more interactive because the audiences are small enough to be able to hey, reach out to them and we're available enough um although i have to say the longer i do it the harder it is to be available to everybody but um mm-hmm. you know it's 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 more inter- it, it's always been great to be an interactive medium and uh it helps you keep going the listeners you know and they when they have um and they say look this is great i like this episode you know that feedback is important support your podcasters people so uh what's your background are you a historian or do you have training in something else or what a literature major, actually, but I always, one of the things was, I always, you know, read a book. Sure, I love reading books. Exam- my my college training was to examine literature, but I always liked examining the life of the writer. And I always liked history. And mm-hmm. so I was doing history kind of in the side, even though I was a lit communications major um, at Stockton College down in South New Jersey. Um, but always reading a lot of history books so amateur historian is the best uh way to describe it i never did get a history degree but um you know if there was some college maybe they'd give me an honorary one for all the for all the work i've done and it's just answering questions for myself that i think might be interesting for the listener and we do get into in the process of my history can beat up your politics a lot of useless information it really does come up because it's it's a, or a lot of unusual stories or little things that you hear um, that comes from, for example, um, learning from books rather than always from online sources, which can tend to be homogenized and changed over time and conforming with the current belief. So I like to go to the libraries and read a book that was written, you know, even if it was the 80s or 90s or the 60s or the 1800s even. And and just get that different take. In the process of that, you find a lot of trivia. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, oh, tell me life. about it. <laughs> People ask me, where do you find these crazy stories? And I'm like, <laughs> I, I just read. That's it, yeah. you know. Um, and I've been doing it so long that I've been able to just, I can read an entire book in that one sentence that's in that book. We'll just say there's a story, you know, and I'll, I'll just I'll just jot it down. And, and when I have some time, sit down and see if I can find anything about it, you know. Um, Absolutely. So I wanted to tell a little bit about what the podcast is about. Now, I, I guess sure. I should ask uh, before you do that, uh, obviously you have the word politics in there. Is this sure. like something only someone to the left or someone to the right would listen to, or is that not the point? It's not the point. Um, it's definitely not the point to be partisan. That is to say, to support one party over the other um, or or any party, uh, a particular group of politics. We examine politics itself using history now that being said i am who i am i have my biases sometimes the listeners will point that out i do try to consider a lot of points of view but it's also not a here's both sides of the question type uh in every episode um but we really strive to avoid political fights talking points partisan party statements and things like that and just look at what happened and also what happened in the past so what's going on today with politics and what happened in the past and politics have definitely gotten a little angry at the current time but there were periods in history where they uh, were as well 
And so mm -hmm. that's another thing that we'll examine. We'll examine, uh, let's say, fundraising over time. We'll examine political partisanship over time, the freedom of the press and presidents attacking the press or, you know, whether it whether it's uh, Donald Trump or FDR, you know, or Teddy Roosevelt, you have or Bill Clinton, you have presidents schmoozing, manipulating, yelling at reporters. <laughs> um, in the case of FDR, he used to embarrass them in front of the other reporters who would then chide their reporters over beer, beers later. So he never had to quite yell at them, but he had a similar effect, uh, you know, to, to some presidents today. Uh, so we look at all of those types of things, presidents going to war, presidents dealing with Congress, presidents and budgets, how almost every president, save uh, perhaps uh, Coolidge and Harding and, a, and a Jefferson and a few others, almost every president increased the budget during their time. They might have right. kept pace with inflation or not. So getting that kind of historical perspective, do gas prices affect elections? Like these are type of questions. Did inflation keep us from going to space in the past? What was inflation like? You know, inflation's a great idea that works well with my history computer politics because i i was telling people through the uh, 2000s even the early part of um the the 2010s guys you don't know what inflation is like you don't know what inflation is like i can i'm telling you stories about the 70s you have to understand and to put them in that perspective and now everybody got a taste of it everybody got a taste of it but for for the length of time i've been doing the podcast i've had to just tell people what inflation was like well one of the things it did is is kind of killed the space program. So we have an whole episode on that. You know, you can't go yeah. to the moon again when it costs that much. So, you know, the space shuttle was originally supposed to be a shuttle. It was supposed to go back and forth into a to a space station orbiting Earth. And they 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 saved only the shuttle part of the program and decided to do a few trips, mostly involving mm -hmm. military hardware. It never reached that shuttle status that actually Nixon had first um, proposed and then eventually cut out of budgets due mostly to inflation. So things like uh, that. We look at history and how can it help us understand today. I try not to make people too angry, although sometimes I do, but uh, <laughs> and I'm sorry for it. <laughs> I think most of the listeners who listen know, and I, I and the greatest thing, I have listeners of all persuasions. Um, one guy, it's him and his brother-in-law, totally opposite politics, both wrote positive reviews of the podcast. Yeah, I have to say uh, I listened to a bunch of episodes um, over the last couple of months, I guess. And uh, I really couldn't figure out what your political, you know, bent was, you know, because you, you you were just telling the story and presenting the facts and so on. Um, and uh, I, I think my initial when I when I just saw the title, you know, my my history can beat up your politics. I was thinking you're going to take one side or the other. And it's it's definitely not like that. So that, that's well, actually a compliment. Oh, thank you. No, much appreciated. The name is funny because when I first started, you know, there's that common phrase like my dad can beat up your dad or whatever used. And I, I, I do worry that the phrase is becoming less popular, perhaps. So people aren't. And I got I got one guy at one time like, I don't like violence. I'm like, I don't like violence either. It's I'm not beating up anything. It's very tongue in cheek. It's it's almost like philosophy can beat up science. It's just think of it that way. You know, right. history can beat up politics. Hopefully the telling of history could change your perspective. Maybe it won't change what person you're voting for, uh, but it would change how you view an issue. Like, oh, there's a little more to it than that, perhaps. And I try to focus on that more than the, 
I try not to jump to a lot of conclusions. I used to do that more. Say, here's what you should think about this story. And I, over time, let the listener do that for themselves. So, Bruce, I asked you to choose a story that my listeners might like to hear. So what did you choose? On my podcast, I covered how Cincinnati has an entire subway system underneath it. And many residents have no idea. And it's not operable. So in 2007, a traco is working on a new parking garage for a hotel. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it gets stuck in the ground. Okay. You know, just keep kind of revving back and forth. That's the normal way to get yourself out. Oh, no. It partially flips over because the ground is sinking. And they're like, is this a sinkhole? I mean, the construction crew has no idea. They ask engineers in the area. They, they have no idea what's going on. Maybe it's some kind of sinkhole. Even some town agencies in Cincinnati aren't aware until they start asking historians. They say, yeah, <laughs> you hit the Cincinnati subway that's there. The what? And uh, historians knew that underneath that ground was a tunnel originally constructed to be a subway system for Cincinnati, a city that currently does not have one that relies mostly on cars. Buses is a key part of its transit system in that city. And although I have to say the story has gotten out a little more than when I first reported on it, there's more websites and YouTube and things like that. I would say most, or I, I think a better word is many Cincinnatians do not know that mm -hmm. there's a subway there. Uh, and at least one government agency at the time had forgotten about it to tell the construction wow. group. And um, it's largely under the streets. There are parts of Cincinnati where you'll see these gates that are usually padlocked. But the problem is that, you know, we're not talking about New York City here with a lot of patrol capacity and to keep going and a lot of maintenance crews and to keep going and revisiting sites. There'll be um, people who want to go into some of the sites, do their graffiti or what have you. They'll break the padlocks. And in a lot of cases, there remain padlocks. I was told by one Cincinnatian that generally, if you want to get in there, you can get into this <laughs> um, lost ghost subway system because usually the padlock will not be uh locked they are right now dark dank tunnels often filled with graffiti there are youtube videos up there if you want to see just type in you know cincinnati subway you'll see youtube videos of people walking in sometimes the water that accumulates in some of these subways are you know is disgusting and there's a lot of water and this garbage strewn over it and it's kind of uh, musky and everything like that but the thing to think about it is it isn't it is as if an entire subway system was built tunnel the spot for the tracks the ledges for the or the platforms where people will stand on and the tunnels in between for miles and miles but there are no trains and in most cases, no tracks built. Did, did it ever open or it was abandoned before it, it ever ne opened? It never opened. So um, the, the story behind it is, and, and a good way to understand is that, you know, Cincinnati, if you get to the turn of the century, it is a still a growing city. It's the seventh largest city 
in America, Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio has a long history with America. It, you know, if you're talking about the 19th century, Cincinnati is constantly showing up as kind of the wonder city, growth city. It's right on the Ohio River. It's a great position for um, uh, freight shipping and uh, steamboats. The steamboat era just helped Cincinnati even more, though it also sent traffic more to St. Louis and other areas. The Erie Canal hurt it a bit, but it's still the growth city. It's getting some of the big, I haven't heard of a political convention in Cincinnati in a long time, but it had political conventions um, back in the 19th century. It's a pretty big city. One thing as you reach the turn of the century, even though it's seventh largest city in America, it's getting eclipsed by, say, Chicago and New York. And one of the things they have is much better transit systems. Mm -hmm. And at this time, before the really the automobile has taken off, the thing that can really grow a city's economy is a, is a transit system. And so you have, you know, your streetcars. And we know streetcars in history. We see them above the ground. We see people dodging them in some old films like kids running down the street to across the tracks before the train comes. And the team, the L.A. Dodgers, which used to be the Brooklyn Dodgers, that comes from Dodgers, people dodging trains. Well, there's a problem with that because you also have, at the, if we're talking about 1900, you still have a lot of horse and buggy traffic. We still have uh, some automobiles. And those streetcars are taking the same roads that those other forms of transportation are taking, in addition to uh, pedestrians. So it's just taking up space. It's something to dodge. And so you can only do so much with those. So most cities, including New York, turn of the century, let's get this underground and develop a subway system to help grow the economy. And Cincinnati um, is a little late to the game, and that's going to be part of the problem. The other thing is Cincinnati is not unlike a lot of American cities. There are some politics involved. It is a um, in the grip of a political machine. The, in this case, because it's Ohio, around the time we're talking about, this would be a Republican political machine. There would be several factions within Republican politics. For instance, this machine that controls Cincinnati, that's going to be the Cox machine. And James Cox is later going to run for president. You see Cox Papers is still a name that you might hear, uh, still influential. Well, George Cox was the kind of the boss of Cincinnati, and he would be backing, say, James Blaine, Republican president. He would be backing uh, William Howard Taft, comes from Cincinnati, connected with this group, um, where people like Warren Harding, other Republicans, not in Ohio, not big fans of the Cox machine in Cincinnati. And uh, Cox owns a saloon, and he uh, doesn't get a permit for something from the city. And so they 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 rude the day that they didn't give him his permit. And they uh, he developed an entire political machine. He took over the city. If you wanted wow. a job, you had to go to his saloon and get a job from Cox. In addition, he has connections to Taft and all the other big national politicians who want to win Ohio and win the votes of the city of Cincinnati. So, um, but Cox dies in 1916. Before he does... He puts forth this idea of let's um, put together a transit system, which also involves a lot of jobs and a lot of money that can come in from possibly from state and some federal um, resources. 
for that. And you can also float. Um, actually, at this time, the main source of revenue would be floating municipal bonds. So it's a $6 million project, a lot of money in that time. He dies. The uh, machine is taken over, the political machine, by uh, his lieutenants. The boss actually runs the politics in Cincinnati, but doesn't want to live there. So he's in New York. <laughs> but they do the bond in 1960, and they have the slogan that says, old Cincinnati can't, new Cincinnati can. The citizens get together. Subways are really popular at this time. It's overwhelmingly voted for. Well, a couple of things are going on. In 1916, by the time they actually get the bonds going and get any construction started, they are late in the game. And first of all, there's inflation from World War One, so everything mm -hmm. costs more. So this money that they thought would last till the 1940s, that $6 million bond money, is all used up by 1926. Wow. And it probably wasn't even enough money to begin with. People thought that it should have been double or more. The other thing you have is the automobile starts becoming popular. And Cincinnati now has to spend some money on building new roads. And the subway's being built very slowly while the roads are, can be built in, in a quicker fashion. On top of that, politics change. And there is a, a new mayor, a seasoned good, who has absolutely no interest in the old machine, wants to kick out the corruption, and seasoned good wins election to city manager. Then he's able to become uh, mayor of the town and slowly gets rid of the... First, he says he's going to shrink it then gets rid of the subway system. Right. So they had built miles of tunnels, some stations, even built the stairs going up to the ground and everything, but never had the resources or the will at that time to continue building the uh to continue building the stations and he favors automobile and they're eventually going to build a major um interstate through the downtown in Cincinnati rather than having this train. So Cincinnati never gets a subway system. Um, what they do have is a very interesting kind of ghosty story and an interesting place for enterprising <laughs> teens and new YouTubers to go down or to people that are graffiti artists to go and hang out um, from what I understand from people who have been there, it's not really a place where, because it's so cold and dank and the air is not great, it's not really a place where even a lot of homeless ever stayed. It is occasionally checked by the city and patrol, but not, you know, not all that much. Um, there were attempts in the 1970s. There's a nightclub, and actually the nightclub is owned by the father of George Clooney. And he proposes to make a nightclub, like a large nightclub underground in this Cincinnati subway. But it never gets off the ground. In the 60s, they talked about, hey, let's use it as a bomb shelter. There's never just ever a use for it. Even like in the 80s and 90s, they start thinking about, well, maybe we can tell Hollywood, this is a great place to film movies. If you want a subway, you don't have to go to New York and ask them to close down their subway. They're not going to do that. We've got an empty subway here. All you need is to get, you know, buy a kind of a train prop and you can film. They proposed it to the producers of Batman, but no Batman was ever filmed and no movie <laughs> has ever been filmed down there um, to speak of. 
And what I talk about in my program is it's good and bad. Uh, on one hand, of course, back in the day, Cincinnati wasted a lot of, no doubt, absolutely wasted a lot of bond money on the project. The bonds were not paid off until the 1960s. So bonds wow. taken out of the teens were not paid off till the 1960s. And, you know, they kept refinancing them and passing the costs and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, a citizen in Cincinnati has to rely on bus transportation, which is not the most effective way to get around the city. The city is now 65th in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, 65th in population, whereas in the time we're talking about, it was seventh in population in the United States. Um it's not a result of not having a subway necessarily, but it's a factor in its economy. Um, on the other hand, you know, I talked about it on my podcast. On the other hand, not having a subway could be a plus two. You know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, some urban cities paid a price for their transit system. It created a huge expanse of land that had to be patrolled. New York had 3,100 police during its high crime era um, patrolling these subways. And in many cases, crimes were committed. You know, it's a high crime area. All of the transit systems in the major urban cities of, um, of the country. And so on one way, in, in, in one sense, Cincinnatians may wait more on average for transit than people in other cities. In another, they may have dodged a, a bullet in a form, dodged some pain. So we talked oh. about that on the podcast. Cool. Uh, it just reminds me, uh, well, I, a few things pop in my head. Uh, Rochester also has a hidden subway, um, but it was actually used. Uh, I came across this article a few years ago, actually more than that now, probably about 10 years ago. It was in, in a, like a New York State histor history magazine and uh, they have a they have a subway. I think it was abandoned in the fifties. And I think uh, this is a small section that went underground, you know, downtown. Uh, that still exists, but anything above ground is gone, uh, is my understanding. Um, but uh, what it really reminds me about is this. I wrote a story probably in the late nineties for my website, and then it ended up in my first book. Uh, it's about this guy uh, Alfred Beach in eighteen seventy. He, his father, I believe, founded the New York Sun, and he oh. owned Scientific Scientific American. So, you know, he, he was well off, let's just say. And he'd look out his window from his office and see, you know, the horses going back and forth and all the waste on the streets and people trying to, you know, cross the street and not step in it. And he thought it'd be a good idea. He had, he had heard that they had opened a subway in London. He thought it'd be good to have one here in the United States in New York City. Unfortunately, this is kind of what you were getting at. Boss Tweed controlled everything. And uh, there was no way to get a, get approval for it because Boss Tweed wouldn't have gotten all the kickbacks on all these, uh, you know, you know, cabs that were going around the city, you know, the horse-driven cabs. Mm -hmm. So he decided to just build it in secret. He uh, At night, they would, these, these workmen would go down into a basement of a building uh, not too far from City Hall, I think right near City Hall. And they would just go down there and dig this tunnel out and uh, when it opened, it was gorgeous. And I had this beautiful, you know, he had to impress people. So, uh, but what was interesting is you couldn't use, uh, you know, trains because back then there were no electric trains. They were running on, you know, coal probably or, or wood or something like that. And it, people would die from, you know, from the carbon monoxide. So he created an, a pneumatic tube, uh, you know, basically, you know, like you go to the bank and you 
put your money in the tube and it sucks oh, it up. Yeah. And that it was a, just a giant version of that. And people went down there and they take a ride on this thing. Um, and then, but he never made any money on it and uh, it got sealed off. And when they were building the city hall subway station, they actually knew it was there. Mm. But when they were, when they were uh, building it, they broke ground and there it was fully intact sitting there. Um, and eventually they just put up a plaque saying, this is where it once stood. But my understanding is the plaque's long gone, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think you can still um, go to the area. Uh, it, uh, oh yeah. A couple of things there, uh, New York subways were private originally and people, even people like myself uh, who have no business knowing the names, we still say sometimes the IRT or will use the uh, old private name to describe a line that long ago in the 60s it was changed to the far, the five, the six, the, the A, mm -hmm. the E, you know, but uh, there's still some people still use those old names that represent the private um, industry subways, none of which really were that successful, especially the ones that only went across the city as opposed to up and down. And um, the pneumatic subway, yes, when it opens, the mayor of New York City is um, George McClellan, the general from uh, the Union general from the Civil War that Lincoln had some quarrels with. It didn't feel like he was attacking enough and all of that, but still a popular guy in New York. His son, uh, George B. McClellan Jr., is the mayor. And so he takes the first like ceremonial drive, except that they're like, Mr. Mayor, um, this is just a ceremonial job. Oh, no, he wants to use the controls and drive the thing. And he <laughs> takes everybody on a really fast ride. Yeah, that's the kind of mayor he was. He was riding around in cars um, just at the at the beginning of that and, and, and all of that. Um, he, too, would have his troubles with political machine and would be forced out of office. Uh, the other thing that, as I studied the story of the Cincinnati the Lost Subway and um, history of Cincinnati and everything like that and subway systems, I realized that Newark, New Jersey also had a subway system. And I got an opportunity to ride on it once. I mean, an wow. underground subway system, which it no longer has. And you could ride from uh, Warren Street where the New Jersey Institute of Technology is. I had a friend there and uh, to the Penn Station where the main trains that go to new york and other parts of new jersey are and and i had a friend who was from south jersey who you know and this is i'm talking like 1994 and he um was like just you know oh um you're going home just go down the subway you can take the sub subway <laughs> yeah yeah subway over there in the thing i took the subway i went down these stairs and i have never been in a place that was so dark, cold, and it's a city that well, I was somewhat familiar with. I wasn't totally super familiar with that end of the city. And uh, no one else on either side of the tracks and just waiting, sort of hoping that this wasn't another abandoned subway, that this actually was a subway that was working when finally after maybe a half hour of waiting, you know, I see the lights and it was a little train at uh, very similar to the Boston Tea Trains, where it's like a little bus. It's mm. not like a silver bullet train. It almost looks like a little bus on the tracks. And that took me, it was 35 cents in 1994. 
since been <laughs> abandoned, it's all above ground now. So Newark has a light rail. It's all above ground. So none of that subway exists. I'm glad I got the chance to at least ride wow. on it. Cincinnati tried that too. So in 2002, they had an initiative, like spend $2.7 billion. A lot of it's going to come from the federal government. and But some of it's got to come from Hamilton County, Cincinnati. And we can turn some of this subway into light rail. Now the voters rejected it two to one back in 2002. So they don't have that option to use there. There were elements of the Cincinnati subway that also were above ground. And those were taken down in the 60s to make way for other things in the city. Sure. Well, that was an excellent story. Uh, so uh, the next section I want to get into uh, is what I call footnotes history. And these are just short little tidbits that I come across. Basically, for every story I come across, there's like a hundred little one paragraph, two paragraph type things. And uh, so uh, these require no research. We're just going to read them word for word. And we're just going to take turns. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, so I'll do the first one. The story appeared on page one of the January 10th, 1925 edition of the Herald Statesman, which is in Yonkers, New York. The headline reads, Saved as Auto Runs Off Dock. The subheadline is, Watchman on City Pier Hall's chauffeur out of icy water, fell asleep at wheel of car, he says. Falling asleep at the wheel of a light automobile he was driving on Main Street early this morning, a man described as Hamilton Dowen, 31 Inwell Avenue, Larchmont, New York, employed as a chauffeur by the Installation Engineering Company, 8716 116th Street, Richmond Hills, drove his car off the city dock into the Hudson River. He was thrown clear of the machine, which was completely submerged, and was saved from drowning by John Adrianson, watchman at the pier, who threw him a rope and hauled him out of the icy river. According to a report of the accident made by patrolman Paul Both of the 1st Precinct Police, Dowen's car was proceeding west on Main Street about 3.40 o'clock this morning. The car passed Buena Vista Avenue, continuing under the New York Central Railroad trestle to the city dock, where it crashed over the string piece just to the left of the entrance to the recreation pier, falling into the water of the slip between the pier and the National Sugar Refinery. Adrianson, on duty at the forward end of the pier, heard the crash as the car hit the string piece and turned just in time to see the machine plunge over the edge. He ran to the spot where the car disappeared and saw Dowen, who had apparently been awakened as he struck the cold water, floundering about. Dowen was able to grasp a rope which the watchman threw to him and he was hauled to safety. He was removed to St. John's Hospital in an ambulance which was summoned by patrolmen both. Dr. Herbert Zerner found that the chauffeur had been uninjured, but detained him at the hospital for observation. Later this morning, it was said that no serious effects of the immersion had developed. Dallin was questioned at the hospital by patrolman Both, who quoted the driver as having said that he must have fallen asleep at the wheel of the automobile, as he had no idea where he was going when the accident happened. At Dallin's request, a wrecking crew was sent to the dock to lift the machine from the water. Mechanics succeeded in getting a line to the car, but because of the high water, they were unable to raise it this morning. Another attempt will be made to move the car at low tide this afternoon. There's not, you know, New York, New York can't beat it. There's a story every day in the city. 
Oh, that is true. Uh, what what this story reminded me of was in 1986. I was in graduate school at the time, and my brother was graduating from college at SUNY Oswego. And my my parents wanted me to come home to watch their pet shop so they could go to my brother's graduation. So I come home. Uh, I said to my dad, oh, let's fix the uh, sink in the bathroom. It was leaking. So we go to the plumbing supply. We come home. And I should tell you that my parents' pet shop uh, uh, was originally in their house. And uh, I look, and there's a car sticking out of the house. Huh. Uh, a woman fell asleep at the wheel on the way home from work. A straight road, fell asleep, took a left turn, went right into my parents' house, took all the fish tanks on one wall, and they all went flying into the other. And... Uh, I, I didn't go back to college for a month because I had uh, my parents decided to move the store out of their house. So I spent the next month building them a new store, you know, painting all the fish tanks, putting the plumbing in, you know, carpeting everything. Um, so anyway, uh, as I was working on this, as I was reading this story, I couldn't help but uh, think of that. So long time uh, ago, though. Yeah, that is that is uh, that's a shocker. I mean, uh... <laughs> At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the, uh, okay, yeah, this 12th. is from the, from the February 12th, 1935 edition of the Hammond Times. A winter snake story, Coldwater, Michigan. Amos Cross, a farmer, was loading wood on his farm, he related today, when he stepped on something. Looking down, he froze into immobility as he saw a coiled rattlesnake beneath his feet. Gingerly, he reached back for a club. Cross struck the coiled menace. To his dismay, the snake shattered into bits. Examination proved... The reptile had frozen to death in its coiled position, leaving the body extremely brittle. Very good. I, I can tell you uh, read literature. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. I think you got to breathe life into the, these things. But what strikes me is that, look, I mean, this doesn't mean that Amos is not brave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Uh um, one thing it reminds me of is I used to mow the lawn for my parents. You know, we, you know, they had about two acres of land and uh, I would go and hop on the lawn tractor. And sometimes the lawn would be pretty high, not knowing there'd be a snake in there. And I'd run over it and I can just can't even describe to you what would come shooting out of the uh, just, <laughs> uh, you know, so quite disgusting. Anyway, we're going to move on. I'll read the next one. This appeared on page one of the January 16th, 1940 edition of the Akron Beacon Journal. The headline reads, Fire Drill is Ordered Even If Pupils Shiver. Brrr. Come rain, snow, or high water, every public school in Akron must have at least one fire drill every month. Those are the orders yesterday of members of the Board of Education to the administrative staff. 
Most of the members were aroused by a report of Superintendent Ralph H. Waterhouse, which showed that eight of the 59 schools in December failed to have the monthly drilled required by state law. Member W.B. Kester got no support when he suggested, quote, we should let the bars down slightly during cold weather, unquote. Quote, if you start letting the bars down, you get nowhere, unquote, declared Clarence Faust. Dr. Horace W. Butler and Kurt Arnold both insisted that regardless of weather, the children must go through the drills regularly, although conceding that an alarm should be rung on days when the weather is fair if possible. Waterhouse reported that at a recent meeting of principals, he had insisted that, quote, there must be no exceptions, unquote, to the fire drill rule. Members discussed the possibility of making arrangements so children could get their coats when the alarm was rung, but Waterhouse said this would cause too much confusion. So, Bruce, do you remember doing all the fire drills in school? Absolutely. I do remember. That was the, the most enjoyable part of uh, uh, elementary and certainly what we call middle school. I guess other people would say junior high, middle mm-hmm. school. Enjoyable part of it for me. You know, it was the most enjoyable part of the, the school. You get to go out and be social with everyone out in the blacktop. Yeah, I, uh, having been a teacher, I can say I've done a lot of them. Uh, New York State requires you to do 12 a year. You know, they have to do, I think, eight uh, before December 31st and four in the spring. And uh, you don't want to be out there on December 31st, you know, with the snow <laughs> and everything. So they try and get them done, you know, right away within the first few weeks of school that you'll just be, you know, twice in a day, they'll have you out there on the field. Um, but I do recall uh, what I used to do in my plan book is I'd write down when the fire drills were. And one year it was clear there was no way they did 12 of them. They, they must have lied on that form to the state. That's all I could think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and this this trend is, you know, doesn't stop at school. So worked at a New York City office for, for a long time, and we would have a pretty aggressive system of both um, fire, but then it also got to just general incident type um, drills. And mm-hmm. uh, each floor in the office building I was in, somewhere near uh, Penn Station there, uh, we would have a fire warden. And I was proud to say that I was the fire warden for the floor. <laughs> um, so it was my job to go over and grab the phone and tell the phone we're all in the hallway or whatever it was we were supposed to do and await those instructions. It could be get down or depending on where the fire was, they could actually tell you to stay where you you were if that was the most safe if there was like a fire in between or something like that never use the elevators just to make sure everyone's out of the bathrooms it was my job to check the men's room and make sure everyone is out and then you know uh, but the funny thing was we actually so this is obviously a volunteer position just somebody in one of the offices on the floor but uh I had t- wrestled the position away from fire warden from somebody else. And so there's a little bit of politics, but this was a person that never really showed up to the office that much. So the three times that we were to do the fire drill, I had to take over as the deputy floor warden. And so I took the position and then I, uh, there was a little bit of backbiting over politics around this <laughs> fire warden uh, position. Yeah. I, I have to say, I don't miss them. It, it sounds crazy, but after a while, you don't even pay attention to what you're doing. It's just, it's just, uh, there's a bell again, you know, and you go outside. Um, oddly, um, I had surgery on my shoulder and I was in a sling and I was in all this pain. 
And I purposely scheduled the surgery during Regents Week, you know, the week that there's midterms. Uh, and that's so I wouldn't miss, uh, you know, too many class periods, you know, too many days of school. I come back, this is the first day back. Uh, and kids, you know, at the mid-year point will change their classes up. And uh, I had a study hall and there's another study hall down the hallway and kids were all messed up. They're all going to the wrong room. You know, some were going to the cafeteria and they should have been in my room and vice versa. So I have my door wide open. This kid comes in late. He sits down. I go, who are you? I, I, you know, I check it off. I don't, you know, I don't know most of the kids at this point. And he tells me, and he's sitting there doing some work and he looks out my door and he, I can't repeat what he said. And he runs out the door and I go, great. I'm back to work, you know, all of like three periods and I got to fight. I go out in the hall and these two kids are just bashing each other. They're rolling on the floor. And I see one of the kids has a plain white t-shirt on and there's blood on it. So I'm like, okay, who's, who's got the bloody nose? And, you know, I'm watching and watching. I can't figure it out. And finally, uh, one teacher comes running. I can't do anything. I'm in a sling, you know. A teacher comes running down the hall, pulls one kid back. Another kid pulls the other kid back and they separate. And I go back in my room and one of the kids goes, he had a knife. I'm like, what? I didn't see any knife. So I get all the kids back in. They get on the uh, PA system, like shut the doors. Don't let any kids go anywhere, blah, 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 blah. Basically, they couldn't find the knife. So they were looking for it. And uh, what they learned eventually was he, the kid who did the stabbing, um, he dropped it in the garbage in the nurse's office. Because it turns out he didn't stab the other kid. He opened it and it closed on his finger. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. So, yeah, but, that's but, a... <laughs> but the crazy part of it is we had practiced all these emergency drills, lockdown drills. It was code blue for this and code red for that. And this is the one time we needed to use it. And it all went out the window, you know, <laughs> just forgot about it. Just shut the doors and don't let anybody out, you know, so. <laughs> Always felt bad for teachers. They don't, they don't teach you that as part of the, the training, you know, you're going to have to break up fights. Yeah, oddly, I didn't have to break up too many over the years. Uh, it just it just kind of comes with the job. Maybe one every two years or something like that, you know. Um, and I'll hopefully never have to do that again. So, okay. <laughs> hopefully. So, Bruce, you're going to read the next one. So, why don't you take that one? So, this is from the August 19th, 1955 Lansing, Michigan State Journal. Mm -hmm. Catches a trout with a fly swatter. With the help of her two sons, Mrs. John Johnson caught a four-pound, 24-inch trout with a fly swatter. Seven-year-old Steve spied the fish yesterday near the shore of the Round Lake in this upper Michigan community. He called his mother. She dashed out of the house with a fly swatter and took a cut at the trout. It jumped right onto the shore and between the legs of 12-year-old Johnny. That's a way to do it. Yeah. Um, oddly, you know, cause I, I uh, do these retrocasts, but I alternate them with full-length stories. And way back, uh, uh, probably about four years ago, three years ago, I did a story called A Nose for Fishing. And it's about this guy. He accomplished all these things in his life. But when he was seven years old, this is 1873, he was out with his mother in a boat. And he looked out over the boat and a, and a trout basically jumped out, jumped up, grabbed his note. He he you know, pulled back and he caught, he caught the uh, fish with his nose. And for the rest of his life, he was known as the guy who caught the fish with his nose. I wrote that for my third book and the editor, the editor didn't, I love the story. 
but my editor didn't like it. So it got rejected. And that's why I did it for the podcast. Um, you Oh, know, good. people Like are, that story. That's yeah, crazy. she, uh, we had definitely a different view of things, you know, um, Or some maybe of the best, written word. Maybe it's a better spoken than written word. maybe, um, I don't know. I, I tend to like these human interest, little quirky stories, you know, and that one really fit uh, what I do. So, okay. So I'm going to do the last one. This is from the May 12th, 1966 publication of the Akron Beacon Journal and appeared on page one. The headline reads, Beetle Locks Get in Swim, Chicago. And it reads, Beetle-length hair and the problems surrounding it have reached the bottom of swimming pools. Quote, It clogs up the strainers and the drains, unquote, Vernon F. Herland, Director of Recreation for the Chicago Park District, declared. Pool operators have dealt with the long hair problem in the past by requiring women to wear bathing caps. Men, because they wore their hair short, were exempt from the bathing cap rule. Now, when a young man may have longer hair than his girlfriend, pool owners are revising their thinking. William Diaz, 22, a life-saving instructor, says he tells mop-haired students to cut their hair or wear a cap. Quote, Another thing that gums up the works is the oil that they use to keep their hair in place. It forms a film on the water and we have to clean it up, unquote, Diaz said. Now this got me thinking, um, it mentions in the story all the oils that these kids are using in their hair, but I don't think the Beatles had any oil in their hair. It was just mop tops, right? They just wore their, their hair long. I don't recall them like greasing it back. They did, I know, before they, became it, they hit it big, but... Yeah, maybe beforehand. That seems more of a well. You definitely, yeah. The 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 hoodlum would be more that I would be, uh, you know, something from like the Outsiders, where I'd be more likely to see that that those oils than uh, the Beatles. I think the Beatles were a little, uh, um, yeah. They let it. They let it free. Yeah. And I was trying to think of, uh, you know, what people use in their hair. What were the brands? They're like Brill Cream and uh, what was the other one? <laughs> Dippity Do. Dippity Do. That was Dippity. it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm looking at a picture as we talk. And really, those are um, those are tr that's trimmed hair, really just uh, shampooed, if you ask me. Right. So, Bruce, earlier in the podcast, I asked you to guesstimate when carbon paper was invented. What, what's your answer? What do you think? Around when? 1898. 1898. You're a little bit off. Uh, Want to make another guess? I'll go earlier. Earlier. Okay, so typewriter. How oh, about it's more than typewriter? You're right. 1860. 1801. And yeah. Uh, and uh, it was invented by a guy named uh, Pellegrino Turi in Italy. And he needed ink for what he had. He basically invented a primitive typewriter and he needed ink. And that's why the carbon paper was invented. Uh, now, um, it was that did not get into common use in 1806. English inventor Ralph Wedgwood, he's uh, part of the family of the ceramics uh, Wedgwood. He wanted to duplicate documents. So he got the patent uh, on carbon paper. Now, um, this just as I was putting this together, it reminded me because uh, I taught physics for thirty years. I would give I would give the kids carbon paper for the lab. You know, a ball would hit it, it uh, and it would put an impression on the paper underneath. And it never occurred to me. You know, in the early days of my teaching, kids knew what carbon paper was. 
but towards the end of my career, they had never touched a piece in their life. And they'd always put the carbon paper in upside down. So all it would do is put the ink on the back of whatever was hitting it, you know, so they, they, <laughs> they lift up and there would be nothing on, on the paper. So uh, of course, uh, eventually they came out with the carbonless carbon paper, you know, where the two pieces just came in contact. Um, it's a fascinating thing, you know, in doing historical research, an author had said that the Kennedy administration, there is so much information on John Kennedy's presidency because a lot of it was done because of all the carbon paper, because they would sometimes throw out the first copy of documents and even the second, but some of these had triplicate carbon, um, triplicate paper. They would find that carbon copy somewhere. And so there's so much information. And his, his point was that, you know, if all of it was read, maybe AI can do it. You know, he said that the draws that he had to go through of information to write a book, he knows he didn't get everything, you know. Right. So uh, maybe AI someday can tell you really what happened in the Kennedy presidency, but on all from all those carbon sheets. You know, uh, one of the things I've been doing recently is going back through my old episodes because I recorded them with a really junky microphone and, uh, you know, research wasn't that great back then. It was very hard to do research online. So uh, as I'm doing this, I pull out, I actually still have all the file folders for each episode. And when I pull them out, I realize, A, how little information I was writing those stories based on. But second, just even the last 10, 15 years, how much information has become available mm -hmm. online. Uh, it's just so much easier to do. And every day, there's just more and more and more. There's more and more you do. Oh, I find definitely doing my history that uh, you have to check and recheck you have to you have to check little things, um, just you know, little details, especially of the things that'll mm -hmm. trip you up if you if they're wrong. One source may go a little haywire on something that's only a, a guess or mm -hmm. something said by one person, and uh, you you can um, you know, but you can also get episodes out of that, out of those controversies. Like there's the whole 1820 did James. Um, Monroe get a electoral vote against him or not? Was it an accident? Was it somebody trying to preserve Washington's memory? Or did they actually not like Monroe? I did a whole thing on that with the eight different ways it could be interpreted and all of that. <laughs> so Bruce, I just want to thank you for being a guest on this retrocast. It was great having you on. The story about the subway uh, in Cincinnati is great. Uh, I had never heard that one. And people tell me I know more useless information than anybody, but that's one I definitely had never heard. So just quickly, where can people find your podcast? Uh, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, YouTube, wherever you're listening to podcasts. Yes. Thanks for having me on, Steve. It was great. And, uh, you know, we are a part of Airwave Media Network, both of us. That is correct. Uh, this has uh, been a great time. I really enjoyed it. Uh, sometimes I think I'm talking to myself, and it's nice <laughs> to have, have have another human to share it with. So again, thanks, and let's say goodbye to everybody. Bye. Bye.